0: Yeah, so it is a tag team, um, but I'm going to start. And it's a great uh, privilege and an honour to be here with you today. Uh, it's also a little daunting, but to talk about something that, uh, as Paul said, is, is something that we've been doing a lot of thinking about and grappling with in the, in the trenches in some ways uh, in, in recent years. We've probably all heard the expression, you know, everyone wants to live a long life, but no one wants to get old, And uh, why is that? Well, let me read to you some words from the ancient book of Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and moon and stars are darkened, on the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and those who look through the windows see dimly, when the doors of the street are shut and all the daughters of song are brought low, when one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road, when the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails, before the silver cord is snapped and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the dust returns to the earth. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. Pretty cheery picture, isn't it? <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> Is ageing just a story about decline and desolation, a long enduring of the loss of youth? Well, it's tempting at times to think so, not only because, as, as Lawrence said, we live in a culture obsessed with youthfulness, but because there are significant threats and challenges associated with ageing. But surely that picture is not all there is. Sarah and I began reflecting seriously on this when we were working as chaplains in aged care. And in the nursing homes and facilities where we worked, there was a great deal of joy and laughter. There really was. And on most days we were also confronted by what we can only describe as the ravages of old age. People crippled with arthritis and confined to bed. People burdened with loss or confused by dementia. It is possible that the process of ageing and dying is the richest and deepest of life's unfoldings, writes Zen priest Norman Fisher. That's an encouraging thought and a nice counter to the sentiment of Ecclesiastes. But what does it mean? What does it mean not only for those pictured on the billboards advertising the latest state-of-the-art retirement complexes? You know the ones? Smiling couples with perfect teeth, (laughs) trim physiques, and endless years of travel and golf ahead of them. (laughs) Where are those people? So not only for those people, but also for those who are frail, whose bodies are broken and whose minds are failing. What of Fisher's vision, if anything, is possible for them? Well, the affirmation that there are gifts and tasks associated with age is important and is relatively widespread these days. Gifts of wisdom and a role in mentoring others, so-called saging, are regularly mentioned. And yet, for all their promise, these notions can often remain vague and ungrounded, and so in danger of becoming romantic and glib. And again, we we kept having to ask this, how do they relate to those for whom possibilities of living actively and generatively are fading? We do believe there is a vocational dimension to ageing, and this matters, not only for the elderly and for those caring for them, but for all of us who are seeking to live life with integrity. And if we're going to talk about it, and to talk about it truthfully, then we must speak to the full spectrum of the experience of ageing. So to begin, Sarah is going to say a little bit about the idea of a vocation of ageing. And of what it might mean to grow old and not just to get old. She'll draw from the theology of the Christian tradition, which is the tradition we know best, which we believe offers resources to engage our journey of ageing as a journey of transformation. And then, in the light of this, we want to suggest some practices that enable and support this journey. So, tag Sarah.
1: <laughs> we conceive the vocation of aging as essentially as a vocation to be and become more truly ourselves. This isn't to be confused with narcissism or self-centeredness. For so the more I become myself and live out my true personhood, the more I participate authentically and creatively in the life and well being of the world. And nor is becoming myself reducible to some self chosen project for fulfillment. In Christian understanding, human beings are created to be in the image and likeness of God which means being radically responsive to and transformed by the Trinitarian communion of love. Well, this, of course, is a vocation for the whole of life, not just for old age. What's noteworthy about this stage of life, however, is that it crystallises the deepest dynamics of this human vocation. A few hours of pastoral visiting in a nursing home or even in the community makes plain that the process of ageing almost inevitably entails a degree of what Simone Weil called affliction. Experiences of suffering and marginalisation that threaten to eclipse long-held frames of identity and meaning And these experiences challenge glib notions of vocation in this stage of life. Many of those we knew were feeling the effects of curtailed independence, social networks, and significance. They were grieving the death of spouses and friends, and physically experiencing a decline in energy, mobility, and health, a number or losing access to their cognitive capacities. And these are compound losses which stir, can stir unresolved grief from the past. And together with these losses, the prospect of their own death loomed ever larger. It's not difficult then to understand why anxiety, resentment, loneliness and depression are widespread among the elderly. And their situation is not helped by the fact that many have poorly developed resources for dealing with such affronting and dislocating experiences. And one writer refers to this as spiritual risk, that is, a situation of high spiritual need and low spiritual resource hence the importance of this <laughs> gathering. So in this context, it seems to us that engaging the vocation of ageing is best begun early in life. And as we kind of reflected on it, it seemed to us that such engagement has to encompass two fundamental movements. The first is the movement towards what French author Marie de Hennezel describes as self-completion. This is a process of coming to terms with the whole story of our lives, this continuum of identity that Lawrence was speaking about. A life completed is a life at peace, de says, which is why it is so important to put our lives in order and to take stock before we leave the world stage. In a similar vein, theologian Rowan Williams suggests that if you have a picture of human life as a story that needs pondering, retelling, organising, it will be natural to hope for time to do this work, a work he describes as the making of the soul. Well, this clearly can be a richly rewarding process, an ongoing opportunity to distill our own wisdom and perspectives on life and to celebrate its gifts. It can also be painful and difficult at times as we uncover repressed emotions or unresolved conflicts, regrets and disappointments, In such a perspective, says Williams, it is not an exaggeration to say that growing old will make the greatest creative demands of your life. By this stage of life, as de notes, no further compromise is possible between what we would like to be and experience and what existence has given us. We've run out of time. And facing and accepting the truth of ourselves and our lives requires courage. But it's precisely through this work that real ripening fulfillment and celebration become possible. So this. This is the movement of self-completion. But it raises a significant question. Because if the journey of becoming fully ourselves is understood solely as a process of self-completion and self-realisation, then how are we to understand devastating and seemingly disintegrating conditions such as dementia? and conditions that appear to compromise the self in its very essence. Are these disorders simply tragic coders to an otherwise completed life? Do they make nonsense of any talk of growing old? Or do they, like the process of dying, offer possibilities for the fulfillment of our life's vocation. And this leads us to name a second seemingly counter movement in the vocation of ageing, where self-completion affirms the importance of gathering our lives. This second movement is about letting go. Poet David White describes this as apprenticing yourself to your own disappearance. (laughs) And here the process of self-realisation continues paradoxically through relinquishment. It's a movement that feels like dissolution, but which comes to fruition in what is sometimes called self-transcendence. And to recognise this movement as intrinsic to realised personhood and so to the vocation of growing old involves two related understandings, we think. The first is that ourselves are and always were relationally constituted. In our middle years. Some of us can maintain the illusion that we make our own lives. We feel competent, purposeful, powerful, and useful. And that we assume is who we are. When in older age our powers diminish or disappear, we're thrown at some level into crisis. We become aware of our waning capacity to act and contribute as we used to. So many older people you visit say, I'm useless. And eventually we may lose the capacity to control even our own bodies and know our own minds. Old age, little by little robbing us of ourselves and pushing us on towards the end in the words of Teilhard de Chardin. And this can feel as though something has gone terribly wrong and that our lives, far from culminating in completion, are being cruelly undone. The reality is, however, that we never were wholly self-sufficient individuals, but always part of a larger web of gifts and relationships that sustained and indeed constituted us in essential ways. Experiences of intensifying dependence in older age simply make this truth increasingly plain. And the second, it's by letting go attachment to the limited achievements and securities of this illusory self-sufficiency, that we experience ourselves as part, as belonging to a larger existence, the self in communion. In the Christian tradition, this dynamic is revealed paradigmatically in the story of Jesus, who gives himself over to death and is raised to new life in God. This is a dynamic we undergo throughout our lives, when through the little deaths, or the little losings of brokenheartedness, loss, failure, and despair, we are divested of a limited self and way of being, and yet in time find ourselves somehow enlarged more truly ourselves. And I imagine you all have your own stories to tell of these experiences. The basic pattern of conversion and transformation in the great spiritual and mythic traditions involves going down, letting go, and receiving new life as gift, being unmade to be remade. Because investment in the identity of the self-sufficient self has for most of us been so heavy, however, the process of being dispossessed is usually profoundly disorienting, painful and frightening. And though it is all very well to wax lyrical about the essentially relational self and life on the other side of death, It seems an entirely different matter to lose your driver's license and your home, (laughs) to need strangers to shower you and wipe your backside, and even as your mind falters, to remember who you are. This is a form of dying, a journey that can lead through dark places before it opens into light. Even so, The Christian tradition proclaims that the failure of our self-constructed selfhood, the revelation of the fragility of all attempts at self-justification is good news. In the end, we cannot sustain our identities and do not have to. So the vocation of aging involves self-completion and integration, reconciling who we are and have been, what we have done and experienced in a long life. And it involves letting go, realizing that I am not the source and ultimate sustainer of my life's meaning. These movements belong to the spiritual journey at any stage of life. And for this reason, the vocation of ageing is continuous with the vocation of all life that would be fully human. And yet we can now see more clearly how the process of ageing crystallizes and intensifies our engagement with this vocation. As I draw towards the end of life, the call to make sense of the whole, including my death, grows stronger. And as I experience more starkly the limits of my capacity to make myself, the necessity to entrust myself also grows. And paradoxically, these concurrent movements of completion and relinquishment find their consummation in each other. The more completely our life is realised, the more we're able to let it go. And the ultimate completion of our life lies in its final surrender.
0: She's going to be back. So. <laughs> so so I want to turn to the question now of what, what this actually means, these, these, these twin kind of movements that we're talking about, what this actually means for us in daily life. And particularly to think about what practices might, might equip us for the possibility of, of, of you know, ageing gracefully of growing old as well and as well as of nurturing others in this journey. Now of course you'll know there's a growing literature on this idea of ageing well which focuses on themes such as generativity, reminiscence, forgiveness and even things like blessing, passing on blessing. All of these are important and helpful in the work of completion and relinquishment. Today we want to highlight or to hold up two further practices that that we feel are, are less spoken about but are equally as important. The practices of lament and of what we call undergoing. So let me say a little bit about lament and then I'll hand over to Sarah again. To lament is to protest, to grieve, is to be angry to lament is to complain about suffering such complaining of course can be adjudged depressing and detrimental to well-being the kind of bitter resistance that that Lawrence spoke about a little earlier and yet in the Hebrew scriptures lament functions personally and corporately as a means for coming to terms with loss regret and dispossession. if you like it's part of how we move from resistance to acceptance the purposeful practice of lament differs from diffuse and chronic negativity which we came across a lot in our work that kind of chronic negativity brings no release at all but rather keeps us stuck in resistance and bitterness and victimhood. There is a cleansing and cathartic power in true lament. Of course, cultural taboos, particularly in our culture, and personal anxiety can discourage this practice. There's a rawness in it that people find discomforting. Certain religious communities even condemn it as an evidence of lacking faith. However, as Joanna Macy observes, the refusal to acknowledge despair produces emotional and sensory deprivation, psychic numbing and impedes our capacity fully to respond to others. Macy encourages us to do our despair work because despair cannot be banished by simple injections of optimism or sermons on positive thinking. True lament refuses to avoid the truth of suffering. Think about Job. (laughs) It takes us into and eventually through the vulnerable space between the stifling states of committed victimhood and unhappiness on the one hand and avoidance and false acceptance on the other. Now, of course, the way we lament will vary from person to person and place to place. It might be written, it might be spoken, it might be just groaned or enacted. It may be spontaneous and it can be planned. In seasons of trauma and crisis, such as those precipitated by major loss and change, lament may well become a regular practice. When 78-year-old Murray Schwartz suffered the onset of ALS, an aggressive terminal disease of the neurological system, he spoke of allowing himself a time each day, quote, to mourn the slow insidious way in which I am dying. If you've read the book, the great book, Tuesdays with Murray, you'll know that this period of lament wasn't the whole of his experience. There was great joy but it was an important part of his experience, part of how he came to terms with his situation. In a faith context, lament is understood to be an act of worship and prayer, which calls on God, complains and pleads for intervention. It need not be devoid of gratitude and hope, but you know sometimes it is, even in the scriptures. Either way, to struggle with anger, resentment, fear and despair to the point where resistance is finally spent and the broken heart is opened more deeply to love and to life, is crucial in the journey of completion and relinquishment. In the context of aged care and and, and the work we were doing, this seemed to suggest that opportunities for both personal and corporate lament, including the use of ritual forms, are to be encouraged. I think there's a danger and saw this danger that, uh, you know, pastoral care people like us and so-called lifestyle officers and even other family members of the elderly can understand their role primarily in terms of trying to cheer up and distract those who are downhearted and to make them kind of feel better Perceiving sadness or depression as always negative indicators of personal and spiritual well-being and referring to the work of lifestyle officers as diversional rather than recreational, recreational, may be systemic symptoms of a lack of appreciation of the healing significance of lament and function to hinder rather than encourage the engagement of the vocation of ageing. The practice of lament and the practice of undergoing.
1: The literature on aging often speaks of the movement in older age from doing to being. And the need to source our worth increasingly, not in what we do or accomplish, but in who we are. It's understandable that the experience of diminished agency is framed in these terms. But it seems unnecessarily dualistic. Doing and being are not two separate stages of life. All our doing is refracted through the quality of our being all our lives. And being is itself a form of doing. We can be in a way, for example, that resists or denies what is befalling us. We can be anxious, avoidant, ungrateful, resentful. And all these ways of being can stifle our growth and oppress or manipulate or repel those around us. So rather than um, focus on this supposed distinction between the movement from doing to being, we think, we, we find significance the concept of undergoing a practice of undergoing which refers to a particular way of being in the world when our capacity for autonomous action is limited. Undergoing is a practice of intentional yielding, which in the Christian tradition is encapsulated in the term passion, passio, meaning to suffer, in the sense of allowing and being done unto. You know that the uh, King James translated that, Jesus saying, suffer the little children to come to me. It's like, let them, allow them, so suffer in that sense. And importantly, this is a letting go, a letting and allowing, not a giving up. And although this seems a subtle difference, It makes all the difference in the world. To undergo what is befalling us as we age and to undergo it intentionally involves trust, consent and courage, vulnerability and patience. It means leaning into the reality that increasingly, as we age, we are becoming patients, undergoers of life. And it has to do with our willingness to consent to what is coming towards us, knowing that there may come a point where even our capacity to consent is lost, and we are simply in the place of passio, our whole selves handed over to others, and to the outworking of our frailty and mortality. In the New Testament, gospel accounts the handing over of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane marks a significant transition in his life and in the fulfilling of his vocation. In Mark's gospel, for example, in the Greek text, the verbs used of Jesus prior to this incident are almost exclusively in the active tense with Jesus as the subject. From the moment that Jesus is handed over in the garden, he is rarely the subject of action, but rather is the object of what is happening. The verbs move into the passive tense. He is the recipient of the action of others. He is the undergoer, the one done unto, and that is his passion. Well, Significantly, as we reflect on what it means to age well, this is the necessary and final movement in the journey of Jesus' life, encompassing the twin movements of self-completion and self-transcendence or relinquishment. On the night before he died, as the story of Jesus is told, he had to choose whether to give himself freely into the hands of others and over to death, or resist. It was an agonising choice. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But by the time the soldiers came for him, he was ready. For Jesus... Submitting to his vocation to suffer at the hands of others was not the same thing as resigning himself to the inevitable. In his consent to undergo what was yet to come, there dwelt the seeds of new life for him and for others. What is consenting to this undergoing? as a practice look like? In the first instance, it involves acknowledging that this is where we are and how things will increasingly be for us. If we are to choose our status as patients rather than be victims of our situation, then we must learn patience. In the nursing home, every time I press a buzzer, I must wait on another for response. The tenor of which, insensitive or kind, I cannot control. I must wait for almost everything. For meals, for medication, for visits, for dressing, even for toileting. And every time I feel humiliated or patronised, I must practise an even more costly patience. Recognising, is it possible we could be like this? Recognising this way of being as itself part of my vocation. In his classic work on the stature of waiting, W.H. Vanstone says... Either this dependence and limitation must be a source of increasing resentment and frustration and even self-contempt, or there must be a rediscovery of the dignity which belongs to the person as patient, as object, as one who waits upon the world and receives that which is done to them. This doesn't mean, and we're not wanting (laughs) to say, that this means condoning neglect or abuse or unkindness. And nor does, of course, this stance of patient receptivity preclude us from asking for and hoping for good things. But we may have to learn to accept a degree of less than ideal responses from others and our increasing vulnerability to them. In all its expressions and little deaths, though, this practice of undergoing teaches us to say with Christ, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's an entrusting of self to others and to God, which comes to completion in the surrender of our lives to bodily death, in faith and hope. the Writer George Valant has said, to know how to grow old is the masterwork of wisdom. We focused on the more difficult and painful dimensions of the journey of ageing. not because we want to be overly negative or pessimistic, and not all of us have the same experience of that kind of frailty. But we've focused here because it is our capacity to engage even these experiences, even what we fear perhaps most about this journey of ageing. It's our capacity to engage these truthfully and open-heartedly that ultimately bears fruit in our lives as wisdom, as compassion, as love. It's what gives those who are growing old authority, something deep to teach us about what it means to be fully human, fully alive. Contemplation is intrinsic to this. In meditation, we practice simply being with our present experience, being truthful. We let go thoughts, plans, expectations, We allow ourselves to receive ourselves and our lives as a gift. So if we truly do want to grow old and not just get old, to make of the whole of our lives, however they go, whatever the particular circumstances, we will be called to undergo, to make the whole of this an offering in and to love, then the sooner we start practicing meditation, the better.